seeking uh, the Lord. Right at the heart of this book of Malachi are these words that help it all make sense. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Does anyone recognize this picture? That's our church, isn't it? At first glance, it looks just like our church. But it isn't. But in so many ways, it's just like our church. Like us, this church began in the mid-1800s. And like us, there were a series of buildings before they built the eventual, the long-term church sanctuary, which that is a picture of. Like us, the church was a typical IKEA flat pack, non-conformist church with pews and balcony. This picture might be too dark, but inside it looks just like our church before the partition at the back was constructed. Like us, they were around a couple of hundred members. And just 280 miles away from here, like us, they struggled to stay relevant against the powers of liberalism, the rise of modernity that began to make such a huge impact on church life. If you read their story, in so many ways, it's our story. But just over a hundred years ago, something quite astonishing happened in this church, just like us. It can only be described that the fire, the power, the presence of God fell. And the greatest revival the 20th century was to see in our country began in that church. Within days, hundreds of people had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Conservative estimates suggest that within six months, around 150,000 people had given their lives to Christ for the first time. A newspaper report read like this, a wonderful revival is sweeping over Wales. The whole country from city to the colliery underground is aflame with gospel glory. Police courts are hardly necessary, public houses are being deserted, old debts are being paid to satisfy awakened consciences, and definite and unthinkable answers to prayer are being recorded. Began in a church just like us. And a secular journalist went and visited all that was going on in those early days in Mariah Chapel, Lucker. And he writes in his newspaper, the scene is almost indescribable. Tier upon tier of men and women filled every inch of space. Those who could not gain admittance stood outside and listened at the doors. Others rushed to the windows where almost every word was audible. When at seven the service began, 2,000 people must have been present. The enthusiasm was unbounded. Women sang and shouted till perspiration ran down their faces. And men jumped up one after another to testify. One told in quivering accents the story of a drunken life. A working collier spoke like a practiced orator. One can imagine what a note the testimony of a converted gypsy woman struck when, dressed in her best, she told of her reformation and repentance. At ten o'clock, the meeting had lost none of its ardour. Prayer after prayer went up. Time and again, the four ministers who stood in the pulpit attempted to start a hymn, 
but it was all in vain. The revival had taken hold of the people. And even Mr. Roberts, who was the leader there, cannot keep it in check. His latest convert is a policeman who after complaining that the people had gone mad after religion so there was nothing for him to do, went to see for himself and bursting into tears, confessed the error of his ways and repented. It wasn't just the church that got caught up in the stir. But we read about how so quickly and so inevitably when God does something like that with His people, the community is changed. And so stories abound. Public houses were almost empty. Men and women who used to waste their money in getting drunk were now saving it and giving it to help their churches, buying clothes and food for their families. Not only drunkenness, but stealing and other offences grew less and less, so that often a magistrate came to court and found that there were no cases for him. Men whose language had been filthy before learned to talk purely. It is related that not only did the colliers put in a better day's work, but also that the pit ponies turned disobedient. The ponies were so used to being cursed and sworn at that they just didn't understand when orders were given in kind, clean words. The dark tunnels underground in the mines echoed with the sounds of prayer and hymns instead of oaths and nasty jokes and gossip. People who'd been careless about paying bills paid back every penny. People who'd fallen out long put their hurts and uh, sorry, people who had long fallen out uh, quickly forgot their quarrels and became united again. In fact, Evan Roberts used to say that there could be no blessing on anyone who had unkind thoughts about anyone else. And it all started in a church just like us. What happened in Wales spread around the world to Korea and India and the Far East. And even as it, as it was happening, many people were travelling to Wales because they had a similar burden for their church and their community. People longed to see God do that in their town and so they went to Wales seeking to try and understand what had happened, what had given birth to this great move. And one night in one of the churches, Evan Roberts, one of the leaders of the revival, uh, was speaking. And uh, he called for people to give testimonies. And one man stood up and identified himself as an evangelist from out of town. And he said, I've come to Wales to glean the secret of the Welsh revival. And the story goes that instantly Robert thrust his finger uh, towards the visitor and shouted, there is no secret, ask and you shall receive. Evan Roberts, humanly, was a major player in uh, this revival. And not surprisingly, as a young man, he'd become gripped by prayer. The story goes that his landlord kicked him out because he made too much noise praying both day and all through the night. And uh, a press report, a secular press report, tells of the story of of the young man, Evan Roberts, who would have worked down uh, in the mines, always taking with him his Bible. He was no speaker, no orator. He didn't know uh, hardly any other book except the Bible, which he knew, they said, from cover to cover. And it was always nearby that he might read from its beloved pages whenever he got a moment in his work from which to stop. And then one day down the pit, there was an explosion. And uh, people were hurt and injured, but uh, Evans got out uh, almost unscathed, except that is for his Bible. And his Bible was scorched. There open. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land.
John Wesley later would say, God does nothing redemptively in this world except through prayer. Every revival in history, Pentecost included, began in heaven, but flowed, said Selwyn Hughes, through the church, across the ramp of intercessory prayer. Ask and you will receive. I want us to look in a few moments at what was going on at the very first revival after Jesus' resurrection and ascension there in the early pages of Acts. We've looked at some of these stories in greater detail earlier on this year uh, with our High Impact Church series. But we just need to go back there, I think, and, and glean some more from its pages about how the early church both prayed and saw the first revival come to birth and how through their ongoing prayer they sustained and held together the work of uh, God. Turn with me, uh, would you, to page 1096 in uh, the Bibles, in your pews, Acts chapter uh, 4, that we might look at what we can read there. God was moving in great uh, power. Thousands were coming to him daily. People were getting healed and uh, released from sicknesses. People's lives were being so changed that they were selling their possessions in order to give to the poor to make sure nobody was in need. And all of this was going on and uh, they were beginning to face some uh, very tough times. The religious people were getting anxious and angry and Peter and John had been uh, hauled before the Sanhedrin. And when we pick up the story uh, at verse 23 of Acts chapter uh, 4, we notice that when Peter and John are released from prison, they go back to the people and reported all that was going on. And the people's immediate response was to pray. And we're going to look at those verses just there uh, for the next little while and draw some uh, conclusions, some thoughts from them about our praying in the light of the fact that God has always moved in revival ways, in response to people's prayers, in the light of the fact that it was the people's prayers that ushered in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, then these people's prayers that sustained His work in Acts chapter 4, in the light of what God did in this church, just like ours a hundred years ago, when people got praying, there's stories of 800 or more gathering for prayer meetings that went on through the night. What can we understand about the prayer that God might call us to? Firstly then, when the church truly prays, it includes everybody. It includes everybody. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And that was their pattern. We know from Acts chapter 1 that they all joined together constantly and in prayer. This was not about some and not others. This was about everyone together seeking God to pour out His blessing and to continue all that He was doing. A.W. Tozer uh, writes famously that an individual, you and I, may seek and obtain great spiritual help from God and that is one thing. For a company, though, he writes of people to unite to seek a new visitation of God is quite another thing and is a spiritual labour greatly superior to the first. It might include everybody, but it has to start with somebody. It has to start with somebody. The 19th century revival started with somebody. In 1857, in September 1857 to be precise, a Dutch man of prayer 
by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear started a prayer meeting in Manhattan, New York. He advertised his prayer meeting across the one million people of New York City and six showed up. That's uh, the kind of averages we're used to. The next week, a little better across the whole city, there were 14. Then there were 23 and they decided, what great faith, 23 of them, that they would meet every day to pray. By the end of winter, they were filling the Dutch Reformed Church. By March, every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled. Horace Greeley, apparently a famous editor, I've never heard of him, sent a reporter with horse and buggy around in the early morning to see how many he could count in these prayer meetings. In one hour he got to 12 meetings and counted 6,100 men. Then suddenly a landslide of prayer began which overflowed to the churches and out into the evenings and people began to get converted. Roughly 10,000 a week in New York City alone. The movement spread throughout New England with church bells calling people to prayer at 8, at noon and at 6. A young man of 21, so inspired by what he'd seen Jeremiah Lanfear do in New York, went returning home to Philadelphia and in November, just two months later, in 1857, he started his own prayer meeting. After three months, the average attendance was 12. But he kept going. And suddenly a month later, a wave of revival poured over the city and 6,000 were meeting every noon for prayer. In the capital, Washington, five daily prayer meetings were launched and thousands were attending. Prayer was at the heart of everything God was doing. The result? The estimate is that there were not less than 50,000 conversions every week during the winter of 1857-58. Within a two-year period, one million people were converted. It was said of certain New England towns that every adult in the town had come to faith. And as you know, it moved to Britain. And as the news of what was happening uh, reached our shores, little groups of prayer warriors, of intercessory prayers, began to spring up around the country. Spurgeon commented on what was going on. He talked of a spirit of prayer that was visiting our churches. This prayer gave birth to a revived church and the historian Edwin Orr writes, as a consequence, one million people were converted in the UK during 1860 as tongues of fire descended on rising young evangelists. Well-known figures like Lord Shaftesbury, Richard Weaver, Dr Eugene Stock, George Muller, William and Catherine Booth were either involved or products of this awakening. Major London theatres were taken over for regular preaching services as churches and cathedrals could not accommodate all who wished to attend. The London response to the Spirit's work was preceded by 200 daily prayer meetings throughout the capital. Halls were densely packed for nothing but simple prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It includes everybody, but it has to start with somebody. With somebody. With somebody. When the church truly prays, it must keep going. This was a lifestyle for the early church. We know from chapter 1, we know from chapter 4, we know from chapter 12. At every juncture, we find the people of God and they're there praying, sustaining all the work 
that God is doing. Revival is like that. 800 people would meet to pray in Moriah Chapel, Lucker. Prayer meetings that would go on through the night. Sometimes they wouldn't leave till 4 or 5 in the morning and go off back to the colliery to work. No idea how they functioned in those circumstances. Seth Johnson, another well-known revivalist, talks of uh, prayer meetings in Ammonford. He says, this has been one of the most remarkable days of my life. don't know the last time you've said that when you've come out of a prayer meeting. Even in the morning, a number were led to embrace the Saviour. In the afternoon, the blessing fell on scores of young people. The crush was great to get into the chapel. Not for the service, but for the prayer meeting. A surging mass filled the temple and crowds were unable to gain entrance. The Holy Spirit was indeed among the people. And the church truly prays. It must keep going. When the church prays, it's better uh, together. When they heard this there in chapter 4, verse 24, they raised their voices together in prayer. And that's how the early church understood it. Sure, they prayed on their own. But given the times they spent coming together in prayer, that was the overwhelming stress. They'd gather, taking the times of the Jewish moments of prayer through the day and meeting beyond that in people's homes in order to pray uh, together. And that was their story. And it's a tricky one for us, isn't it? Because our coming together to pray has never been the most exciting thing about our life together. And it's a challenge to me, and it's a challenge to all of us in that regard. Praying on, on our own might be no substitute for us praying together. When the church truly prays, God's sovereignty is declared. And I think this is so important. One of the reasons we find it so hard to pray is that we're so focused, or I am, maybe you are, so focused on the problem. And it would have been so easy for these people in their prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4, as we so often said, to be so focused on the problem. The whole of the nation's leaders were against them. The problem was huge. We would have fully understood them to feel that against the mass of the problem, they had no hope of succeeding. But they chose not to look at the problem. They chose to look at God. Sovereign Lord. The one who is ruler and always in control. It's a very strong word of total lordship, total rule, total authority. They understood that their hope and their destiny didn't rest in the rulers of their nation, but it rested in their God who was sovereign over all. How important is that for us? We might look at our nation and go, no hope. I see no hope. I I see no signs of life. I see no sign of our nation turning. With us now, I, I see no hope. How can revival in these ways be true in our town, in our city? I I can't see it. But what if we stopped looking at that? And we looked at the God who has always held history in his hands? What if we look to the God who has always done exceedingly more than the church of the day ever believed was possible when they cried out to him to renew them and to revive them? 
That's what they did. They kept their focus on the sovereign Lord. And that's why they were able to say in verse 25, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? They could begin to understand that even though all the great, the mighty, and the not so good of their day were lined up against them, uh, they, they list them, don't they, in verse 27, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, almost everybody, humanly, was lined up conspiring against them. Even though that's true, they were able to say, the people will plot in vain. Because our gaze is on the sovereign Lord, who is ruler of all. And as proof that they plot in vain, verse 28, these powers that were conspiring against God and God's people, they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. They were always under the ultimate control of sovereign God. So who would have thought? Who would have thought that in the very dark days of the end of the last, of the beginning of the last century, when scientists were apparently making God extinct, much of orthodox theology was being deconstructed. It was a very dark spiritual time. Who would have thought then, in a church just like ours, that God would start a mighty movement that would bring hundreds of thousands of people into the kingdom. If they'd looked at the problem, they never would have believed that God could do that in their day through them. So when the church truly prays, God's sovereignty is declared. And in one of the reports I haven't read, there's this lovely, excuse me, there's this lovely phrase about how in one of the meetings the presence of God had had just descended upon them uh, and it says they had forgotten the things of earth and stood in the presence of God. When God is that big that the things of earth are momentarily forgotten, that's when the things of earth begin to change. When God's that big, when he fills our gaze, that's when earth gets changed. When the church truly prays, it's no substitute for action. Here was a church that was ready We're not going to stay in our prayer meetings. We're not going to hide away. But enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Help us to get out there and do the stuff you're asking of us, you're calling us to. Stretch out your hand through us to heal and perform miraculous signs. They don't ask to go home to the quiet hills of Galilee. But they ask for strength to keep going. They prayed for more power to do the very things that got them into trouble and God moved through them. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, uh, coined the phrase, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. It's not either or. It's always both. It's always as we attempt for God and expect so much more from God that His power gets released. We can't hide in our prayer meetings. When the church truly prays, it flows out of unity. All the believers were one in heart and mind. We cannot get away from the kind of praying that will shake a place. We cannot get away from the kind of praying that stirs and moves heaven. And that's united prayer. That's not conformity. The unity the Bible speaks of is not us all being the same, all thinking alike, in a, all being in a particular mode. 
But it is a unity of purpose. It is a unity that says there could be a whole host of things that might divide us. But we choose to be united under the sovereignty of God, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the longing to see His kingdom come. That's the heart that opens heaven's doors. We're together and we're serious about this. Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist of the 19th century that uh, uh, some of you will have read about and heard, he wrote a, a little book. And the title of the book was almost the book itself, a, a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promises and prophecies concerning the last times. Just the title. Explicit agreement, visible union, and extraordinary prayer. Those were the three things that he said. Bring those things together. And you'll begin to open heaven's door. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And so the question, of all the things that could divide us, and sure there are many, and always will be many, of all the things that could divide us, are we united in the sovereignty of God, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the longing to see His kingdom And not surprisingly, as this church in Acts continued to pray, there were, well, I'm just going to mention three. Three of the rewards that came. Three of the things that flow out of a church that's truly praying. One, of course, is the presence of God. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. The shaking of the place didn't amount to much. That's not what it's all about at the end of the day. But it was for them a visible sign that God was with them. And so with great power they continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. Why? Because there's a promise. A promise from heaven that when two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. And we've taken that verse, that promise from Jesus, and we've used it to help us feel better when we get low numbers, especially at prayer meetings. Never mind where there are two or three, or one or two. Doesn't matter because God's here. And our focus, our mentality, is centered around the absence of people. When God says, when you meet, let the focus, let your heart be around the presence of the Lord. Let that be what fills your mind and your heart, the presence of the Lord. And what was common about those experiences in Moriah as they prayed, what was common about uh, the people here in Acts, was that they knew the tangible presence of God, working, moving, answering their prayers. We might say, we know God's with us. And theologically, that is true. God is always with us. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about those moments when we know, not in our head, but when we know in our hearts that He is here, that He is with us. You see, we can have a church that's full of good things. You might think there's great music. You might even think that occasionally the preaching is theologically accurate. But at the end of the day, 
Those things will not change you. What will change you and what will be consistent to the times you've left this place and thought I'm different because of that will be because you've encountered the visible, tangible presence of God in your life. It's when you've met with Him that you are changed. And a Christian in Lancashire read about what was happening in the revival in Wales and he and his daughter got the midnight uh, special train to find out what it was all about and they arrived at 6am at Chester Station and they asked the porter, where is this revival? How do we get to the place where it is? Take the 8am train, he said, to Wrexham. From there the local train to Ross. But still, how will we know? You'll feel it on the train, he replied. Go down that road and you'll feel it there. I long for the day when people rub shoulders with our community and they consistently feel the presence of God because he's tangibly with us. When the church truly prays, God's presence is known, but when the church truly prays, God's power is received. And this early church had incredible power to speak with boldness. What gave Peter such power when he preached? He was no speaker, he was a fisherman. It was the Holy Spirit. What enabled these ordinary men and women to turn Jerusalem upside down from the inside out? It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Evan Roberts, it says, was no preacher, no orator, yet they say hearts were set aflame with the love of God. It was the power that drew people. The power that turned unreality into reality. The power that took people off the streets and into those new communities. The power that brought conviction of sin and the reality of forgiveness. The presence, the power, and God's purpose. God's purpose is achieved when the church truly prays. The power of mission and the grace of maturity. The same old things that happen when the church becomes truly the church. In Acts, they saw people saved every day. Their lives were so changed, they gave up what they had and they ministered to the poor so that no one was in need. The revivals down through the ages, that's what people did when they were so changed by the love and presence of God. That's what happened in Wales. It's what happened in the Hebridean revival. It's what happened in all the stories we read around the world today. And centuries ago, Habakkuk prophesied. And Habakkuk said, look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I'm doing something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Those words came incredibly true for a church just like ours. When they prayed and they sought the Lord to do a new thing. It's not for our sake, is it? We live in such a hurting, broken world. I invite you to watch... <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to invite you to watch something on the screen in just, just a moment. And, and as you watch and listen, let's turn these things into our prayers. Not for our sake. We, you know, we could, we're, we're going to go to heaven. Hey, be revival in heaven every day, Forever. We can live without revival here. This nation can't. People in our town can't. They need it. They need it. 